Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual coercion and abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Mary Elizabeth Carrero didn't know where else to turn. In her 30s, she felt so lost. She ran a successful counseling practice, but believed she was unable to really help her patients. Plus, her marriage was on the verge of divorce, leaving her lonely and depressed. So, Mary turned to her old grad school classmate, John D. Miller. He always seemed to have a solution for everything. And he seemed to have a fix for her current problems, too. He invited Mary to his house to try a new tool he developed to heal people. Mary arrived at his home in Kittery, a small town in Maine. After some small talk, John handed Mary his revolutionary instrument, a plain four-inch plastic rod. He instructed her to hold on to it for five minutes. Mary didn't expect much, but she followed John's directions. Her hands gripped the gadget. And soon, she felt a wave of calm wash over her. Mary wasn't happy, but she wasn't sad either. She was just fine, and she considered that to be a miracle. Realizing this was the solution she had longed for, Mary soon left her entire life behind. She poured all her money and work into John's radical new technology. Together, they co-founded a nonprofit named The Gentle Wind Project. After Mary, more people joined the movement, believing that John's instruments could save them. But instead, the devices lured them into a dangerous cult in which John would control every single facet of their lives. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. This is the final episode in our special about miracle healers around the world. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. For our last episode of Miracle Healers, we're taking a deep dive into the Gentle Wind Project, a nonprofit that created so-called healing instruments in the 1980s and 90s. But by the early 2000s, it had grown into a manipulative cult that stole money from its members and allowed its co-founder to sexually abuse his female followers. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. 
Throughout this special series, we've explored miracle healers around the world, the Soviet Union, a rough Brazilian neighborhood, and a remote village in Tanzania. In each country, the respective government systems failed the people, so they turned to faith healers. But this problem doesn't only occur in small countries or crumbling empires. Some faith healing movements took hold right here in the United States. Just like the other movements we've covered, John D. Miller's faith healing cult, the Gentle Wind Project, was in some ways a response to the failures of American social services. And as the organization developed, it took on a distinctly American character. John Miller himself is a bit of an enigma, and what we do know about his early life comes from the cult's co-founder and first follower, Mary Elizabeth Carrero. According to Mary, as a young adult in the 1960s, John worked as an auto mechanic. The gig taught him that every problem had a solution. If something wasn't working correctly, all it took was some sweat and tools to fix it. Soon, he started applying that philosophy to a new area, psychology. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. John was particularly fond of psychiatrist Eric Byrne's transactional analysis theory. The theory organized all social interactions into what Byrne called three ego states, parent, adult, and child. Each state had its own way of relating to the world and others. Byrne wanted to simplify human behavior down to predictable patterns and games that people unknowingly play with each other. But John Miller moved beyond this mechanistic view of psychology to some extent. He became interested in using spiritual methods to create positive outcomes in human behavior and experience. His goal seemed to be to cure difficult and undesirable feelings. It was an ambitious concept, and John didn't know how to get there yet, but he hoped that one day he could. In 1972, John was enrolled at the University of Connecticut for a master's degree in social work, where he dove headlong into developing his new theory. It's likely that he was a bit of an outcast at the university. Most of the professors and students in the program didn't agree with John's ideology. The coursework focused on providing emotional support and effective coping mechanisms for patients, not on erasing their underlying traumas. John was all alone in his approach until he met a kindred spirit in his 23-year-old classmate, Mary Elizabeth Carrero. Mary had worked with drug-addicted teenagers in a counseling program, but she became frustrated that her job focused on talking out problems and did little to address the source of the issues. She thought studying social work would provide more guidance on how to fix those problems. So Mary was just as disappointed as John was with UConn's social work program. She was ready to drop out of school within her first month until she met John. Finally, Mary had found someone else who shared her perspective. She connected with John's theory that everyone could be fixed. Suddenly, John's philosophy had its first follower. After Mary graduated with her master's in social work, she briefly worked at a mental health center. But once again, she quickly grew disillusioned with the work. She felt helpless in only providing emotional support to patients. She wanted to treat the root of their problems and find a cure for emotional pain. So she quit after one year and opened her own counseling center. In Mary's book, she wrote, I was tired of doing something that made me feel bad. 
and working at the mental health center made me feel bad every day. From my perspective, the system itself was lacking. As we previously discussed in this special, faith healers often arise when a country's institutions fail the people. For John and Mary, it was social services in the U.S. that disappointed them and spurred them to create their own solution. At first, Mary and John opened separate private practices, but kept in touch. Mary and her husband lived in Massachusetts. She enjoyed the freedom of counseling her own clients and providing them with potential solutions. And soon, a personal experience inspired her to pick a specialty. When Mary was 29, she gave birth to a son after being in labor for 30 hours. The arduous process wasn't the perfect birth she'd imagined. She and her husband were tired and overwhelmed afterward. In her book, Mary says she felt like a failure, which is unfortunately a common feeling among new mothers. According to the Massachusetts General Hospital Center for Women's Mental Health, 50 to 85 percent of new mothers have postpartum blues, also known as the baby blues. These women experience tearfulness, anxiety, or irritability for up to two weeks. In the late 1970s, postpartum psychiatric disorders were not as widely understood as they are now, but Mary realized that she'd gone through an uncomfortable aspect of parenthood that no one talked about. Soon, she began counseling her friends who were also new parents. But once again, Mary felt like she wasn't doing enough. She wanted to fix their emotional issues, not just talk them through. Adding to Mary's frustration was her own crumbling personal life. In the early 1980s, she and her husband grew apart and eventually separated. The split caused Mary to feel what she termed a crushing kind of sorrow. She wished for a way to soothe her clients and herself more than ever. Feeling helpless, Mary turned to John, just like she did in grad school. And that's when he invited Mary to come to Kittery, Maine to try out his plastic healing rods. John embedded a mixture of herbs and homeopathic formulas into each rod, which was supposedly meant to heal anyone who held on to it. Mary gripped the device for five minutes, and it changed the course of her life. She later wrote that the tool helped her to stop being paralyzed by my own sadness. After that moment, Mary was convinced that the rod had healing powers. Although there's no scientific evidence that John's device had healing properties, it offered Mary certainty during a period of upheaval in her life, which she found to be comforting. In the book Cults in Our Midst, clinical psychologist Margaret Thaler Singer wrote, people at a loss to make sense of the mayhem around them look for direction and become more approachable and vulnerable to the manipulations and exploitations of these skillful con artists. We don't know if John sincerely believed his rods were magical or if he was trying to manipulate Mary. Either way, she was vulnerable to his suggestions. And because of that, Mary was hooked. She started using the rod with her own patients. Mary claimed many of her clients felt remarkably better after holding a rod. The way she saw it, the device wasn't just effective, it was a miracle cure. In 1983, the 34-year-old Mary closed her own practice in Massachusetts and cashed out her retirement fund to join forces with John. She left her son with her ex-husband to move in with John and his wife, Carol, in Kittery, Maine. While it was a bizarre turn of events, Mary asserted that she made these decisions independently. She and John just happened to be on the same healing mission. 
John and Mary named their new nonprofit the Gentle Wind Project, or the GWP. The name came from the Chinese divination tool, the I Ching, which contains 64 symbols called hexagrams. Hexagram 57 is known as the gentle, or gentle penetration, and it represents a subtle wind following another subtle wind. It is a symbol of submission and modest success in one's undertakings. According to Mary, they picked this hexagram because it encompassed their principal belief people didn't heal through hard work, but from gentle observation. It's unclear how exactly this related to the healing rods. And that wasn't the only confusing doctrine John and Mary came up with. The duo drew from an eccentric mix of concepts to make their own Franken philosophy, borrowing from Eastern medical principles, Albert Einstein's photon theory, and supernatural ideas of electromagnetism. Ultimately, John and Mary came to view human consciousness as an electrical system, which stored emotional hurt. Their pseudoscientific instruments aim to expel that hurt by healing the human energy field, thereby raising the person's capacity to handle stress. The outlandish rationale was just wild enough to work. In late 1986 until the early 1990s, John and Mary changed the name of their organization to The Gentle Wind School. They taught their beliefs and treated people with their healing rods in a group environment. At some point during these years, Mary even recruited her younger sister and other women to help develop their technology. The new recruits moved into John's house too, which turned into GWP headquarters. But John and Mary believed they had a miracle cure, and they wanted to share it with as many followers as possible. And to do that, the pair needed to expand GWP beyond John's home and across the globe. Next, the Gentle Wind Project spreads around the world. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. By 1987, the Gentle Wind Project had outgrown John D. Miller's home in Kittery, Maine. Several devotees had already moved into his house, including 38-year-old Mary Carrero and four other women. This was in addition to his own wife, Carol. John's therapeutic devices were attracting more followers, so to keep up with the growth, he decided to expand his property. He applied for a building renovation permit, but the town turned him down. Kittery officials were suspicious of the application. John's house had several unrelated women and himself living together in a single-family residence. The small town likely thought it sounded like an illegal business or a textbook cult. Mary and the other followers were outraged. They thought the government was trying to sabotage their work. As they saw it, they offered free aid to people, real help that people couldn't get from American social services. They were stepping in where the system had failed. The refusal only stoked the group's desire for a building permit. Mary consulted with a lawyer who made a wild suggestion. Mary and the other women should legally change their surnames to Miller to match John and his wife. 
It was a creepy idea, and one that could, ironically, solidify GWP as an actual cult. But the lawyer thought having matching surnames would make the town consider them a family for the permits. So Mary and the other two women became Millers. Their determination to become a so-called family was eerily familiar. Other notorious cults have also labeled themselves a family. For example, the Manson family in the 1960s, and the Children of God, later known as the Family, in the 1970s. High control groups like cults instill an us-versus-them mentality in their members. This likely helped GWP band together as they recruited more followers and evolved into something more sinister. John and his group family spent years researching and perfecting their supposed healing rods. And by the mid-1990s, John and Mary felt like they had enough understanding to create a more advanced technology. It was a revolutionary instrument that someone could hold in the palm of their hand, a small acrylic disc and a precious stone covered with a clear plastic dome. It looked like a cross between a hockey puck, a snow globe, and a paperweight. John and Mary promised the apparatus would rid a person of past harms and restore energetic balance. With that as a pitch, Mary hit the road in the fall of 1995. She traveled around the country, leading seminars in hotel conference rooms and marketing the tool as a miracle cure. In the 1990s, this wasn't entirely out of the ordinary. Alternative medicine was on the rise across the United States. A 1993 study published in the New England Journal of Medicine found that one in three Americans used an unconventional therapy within a year's time. But unlike other New Age solutions, GWP seemed especially preoccupied with money, particularly in 1995, when the organization hit financial trouble. Apparently, all that research and development wasn't cheap. And according to GWP, for the past decade, they've been offering their healings for free, with the occasional donation. So, to supplement their income in the mid-90s, the group began upselling with increasingly expensive healing tools. They started by distributing free trauma cards, which were supposedly magical pieces of paper. According to the cult, just holding the card would heal a person's spirit. If seminar attendees wanted more, GWP offered personality cards for purchase. It's unclear how much they cost, but the group claimed the cards identified specific traits that a person possessed, kind of like a cosmopolitan magazine quiz. Beyond those cards, Mary tried to convince people to buy their healing discs and rods, which cost between $400 and a whopping $20,000. According to GWP, however, all healings were offered for free. The prices were merely suggested donations. Aiming to distribute as many of these expensive tools as possible, Mary made outlandish promises. She suggested they could cure everything from serious illness to drug addiction. Mary even swore they provided salvation and helped people evolve into a higher state of being. In a new twist, GWP began to claim that John had already reached his higher state. Within the cult, John had exalted status. To his followers, he was the person most connected to the higher realm, the spirit world. John's link to that dimension supposedly harnessed the energy used to power the instruments. To keep their healing tools functional, the group family had to protect John at all costs. For that reason, John stayed out of the limelight. He sent Mary and the group family to do his bidding. 
Presumably, at John's direction, Mary's seminars and newsletters heavily recruited new members, like a multi-level marketing scheme. It was a disturbing combination of New Age therapy and capitalism. Reportedly, GWP followers were given sales quotas that they were expected to meet, and no matter how much money the devotees brought in, it's likely that the GWP leaders pressured them to sell more and draw in more new members. Among those captivated followers were Judy Garvey and Jim Bergen. The married couple owned an independent publishing house, Bergen and Garvey Publishers. Judy and Jim got to know Mary when they began publishing her books, and they enjoyed her insights. They thought of her as a respected writer and social worker. At home, the couple was at a loss when it came to their kids' behavior, so they sought Mary's advice about their eldest son. Judy and Jim expected Mary to talk out the problems like a therapist. Instead, she immediately convinced them to use a more spiritual method of healing. Mary did a soul reading for the couple, using a lock of their son's hair. She then mailed Judy and Jim a tape-recorded message that she claimed to have channeled from a higher power called the Teacher. The cassette tapes mystified Judy and Jim because the information was eerily accurate. The soul reading seemed to give real insight into their children's issues. Jim later wrote, I, for one, like others who tried this service, was flattered and curious. Here at last was some source that knew the real me and seemed to care, just what I thought was missing in my life. GWP asserted that this information came from the spirit world, and the only person who could receive and decode messages from that realm were leaders like Mary and John D. Miller. Impressed by all of this, Judy and Jim started attending GWP lectures and events nearly every weekend. Eventually, they became instrument keepers, the first level of GWP membership. Though Judy and Jim joined GWP early on, this bottom level would eventually grow to thousands of members around the world, based on the cult's own estimates. As instrument keepers, Judy and Jim received invitations to advanced conferences, where they could buy supposedly upgraded, more expensive tools. Judy accepted many of these invitations, even taking several trips to Kittery to try out new devices. Judy and Jim were hooked, and they didn't stay in GWP's bottom rung for long. Soon, the couple moved up to the next level, placing themselves among a smaller group of people who were deeply devoted to the cause. They did exactly as Mary once did. They moved to be closer to Kittery, Maine, leaving behind their professional careers and selling many of their possessions. Judy and Jim willfully donated money to GWP and even gave the organization several loans. The couple lent out the cash slowly, not even realizing the total amount was creeping up to $205,000. In the meantime, the cult continued growing. John's group family bought property in Durham, New Hampshire and Melbourne Beach, Florida. So that along with the headquarters in Maine, the cult owned three houses. While some people lived in the group dwellings, others, like Judy and Jim, lived in their own homes with their kids, at least at first. But no matter where their residence was, all members' time was devoted to doing GWP work. As part of their healing, they all took on positive activities, such as house construction, gardening, and fixing cars. GWP leaders claim this work helped the followers discover unexpected hobbies. 
In reality, it sounds like John made his devotees do his household chores. Further, John and Mary expected members to conform to certain expectations. John allegedly ordered his supporters to have short hair, wear beige clothing, and root for the Boston Celtics basketball team, among other things. Of course, the organization's demands soon became less superficial and more manipulative. Mary used channeled readings as a way to convince members to abandon all of the things they loved most. For instance, once Mary seemed to be done with writing and publishing books, she told Judy and Jim to abandon their publishing company. Mary said Jim's soul wanted to build things like the other members. If he didn't do that, he'd become ill. It wasn't clear what Mary wanted Jim to construct, but he was still alarmed. After the conversation, Jim reluctantly sold the publishing business. It seemed like cutting ties with the outside world was the main requirement for moving up in the organization. Members were expected to take commands from GWP leadership without question. If anyone refused, they were ostracized. Unbeknownst to many supporters, there were also monetary benefits to being in the inner circle. John's group family, GWP's top level, seemed to live with all expenses paid by the supposed nonprofit. They had boats, BMWs, and Corvettes. Additionally, each leader received an annual salary, which, according to Judy and Jim's later report, ranged from $50,000 to $300,000. Clearly, GWP was profiting off the hard-earned money of its members, but the lower-level believers had no idea. Occasionally, GWP's top brass let obedient female followers visit and spend time with John. At one point, Judy earned this opportunity. Mary specifically invited her to participate in a ritual called energy work. To Judy, this was everything she'd been working toward. She would be in the presence of the revered John and help create the healing instruments. She could finally watch John's sacred life force in action. Judy walked into John Durham's home, hoping to be enlightened. Instead, the ritual was more perverse than she ever expected. As it turned out, energy work was the code name for John's group sex activities. Judy and several other female followers were encouraged to have intercourse with John, told that it was part of a spiritual practice. Mary, who according to John and Judy often arranged these events, asserted that this was how gentle wind harnessed the power for new healing instruments. Apparently, the spirit world demanded it. In some sense, the women acted as if they were now married to John. Some even believed that they were in love with him. This is reminiscent of how John's original group of female followers changed their surnames to Miller. Unfortunately, this sexual abuse gave John the highest level of control seen in cults. In a 1997 study published in the Cultic Studies Journal, sociologist Yanya Lalich wrote, Enforcing sexual submission may be considered the final step in the objectification of the individual as a cult member. Lalich also adds, once sexual control is in place, no part of life is left untouched by the cult leader's influence. Once Judy was indoctrinated into energy work, Mary instructed her to follow certain rules. Judy was no longer allowed to have sex with her husband, Jim. She was banned from telling him or anyone else about the ritual. Other men weren't allowed to be involved. 
John was the only man evolved enough to handle it. Plus, it's likely that Judy needed to remain available to have intercourse with John at any time under the guise of producing a new instrument. If she didn't show up when John beckoned, Judy could lose her high-level GWP status and get kicked out for good. But little did Mary or John know, Judy would soon use this knowledge to ruin GWP forever. Up next, Judy and Jim bring down the Gentle Wind Project. Now back to the story. In the late 1990s, Mary and John Miller invited a follower, Judy Garvey, to a top-secret ritual called energy work. It was only open to the inner circle of the Gentle Wind Project. While being invited into that elite level was an honor, Judy's upper-crust status remained a secret. She wasn't allowed to tell her husband, Jim Bergen. She wasn't even permitted to sleep in the same room as Jim anymore. Jim presumed it was a GWP directive and didn't ask too many questions. Reflecting back years later, Jim wrote that it felt like their relationship was now being directed by a higher spiritual source that knew what our souls needed to change. But as time went on, the secrecy created a major chasm in their relationship. Within a year, the couple separated, though remained married. Judy moved out and into the third floor attic of John's house. After the split, Judy and Jim shared custody of their sons. When Jim visited the house in New Hampshire to pick up the kids, he described the environment as chaotic. He later wrote, Any normally functioning person would have considered this environment to be inappropriate and insane and removed his children from such a disturbing influence. But not me. In my controlled mind, this was the place to be. At first, Jim tried to prove to Judy that he was still committed to the group, so he could see his family more often. Soon, though, Jim felt defeated. GWP had stolen his wife, money, and business away from him. Dejected and utterly alone, Jim finally left the cult. And then, he did what any lonely person with internet access might do. Research. Jim looked up literature about high control groups and attended anti-cult conferences. At first, he was in denial that GWP fell into such a category, but then it finally dawned on him. Jim and Judy had spent years in a faith-healing cult, and he needed to get Judy out of there. Meanwhile, Judy started coming to her own realizations. In the fall of 1999, she asked to volunteer in GWP's main office in Kittery, Maine. It was a privileged position only given to a handful of people. While working at the headquarters, Judy did menial office work, like answering phones and arranging Mary's conferences. She also had to sell members on more expensive, upgraded healing instruments. Inside the office, she was likely privy to financial information, like GWP's tax returns and donation records, and came to an important realization. She was asked to leave her volunteer job, and a few years later, Judy declared that John and Mary had borrowed $205,000 from her and Jim over the past decade. She knew about the loans, but she was surprised that the total was so much, and Judy soon realized John and Mary had no intention of paying her back. For Judy, this was probably the last straw. GWP had made her give up her publishing company, her marriage, and had forced her to endure John's sexual assaults. 
Those were all things she couldn't reverse. But Judy may have seen the six-figure unpaid loan and realized that that was something she could get back. It's unclear how exactly Judy left the organization. She likely asked questions about where her money went, which led the leadership to kick her out of GWP. This didn't discourage Judy, though. She continued to demand her money back. After leaving GWP, she reconciled with Jim, and they presented a united front. Judy told her husband about John's energy work and sexual assaults, which the organization made her keep a secret. Together, they broke the news to their children that GWP, the family they had known for over a decade, was a cult. The children had always been skeptical of the group. According to Jim, they responded, We told you so. You should have listened to us. Judy and Jim felt guilty that they had exposed their children to such an organization for so long. They realized they had become absentee parents, putting the cult before their sons. In 2003, John and Mary finally repaid the couple's $205,000 loan, but it did little to quell their former followers' ire. Judy and Jim decided to get the word out about what GWP had done to them. Later that year, they aired their grievances on a newly launched website, windofchanges.org. On the site, Garvey and Bergen detailed their experiences in GWP. Soon, other former members came forward too. Many anti-cult activists joined the movement, including famous cult specialist and deprogrammer Rick Ross. And soon, the site landed on John and Mary's radar. In a book she wrote years later, Mary called Wind of Changes a cyber smear campaign that spread lies about GWP. The organization also addressed Judy and Jim's site by making alterations on their own website during this cyber war. By December of 2003, John and Mary had edited the GWP website to include a rambling 2,000-word warning. At one point in the text, they boldly assert that GWP's 11 full-time employees didn't make it a cult. They claimed if having 11 loyal members was cult-like, then maybe the Red Cross, large corporations, and local car dealers must be cults too. Their rant ended with a vow for revenge. John and Mary wrote, We will confront the filth, distortions, and lies head-on, and fight the originators and purveyors of this completely groundless material with every legal means available to us. The tirade wasn't only directed at Judy and Jim. Around this time, the Maine and New Hampshire Justice Departments caught wind of GWP. Buyers of the healing instruments started to complain that the devices didn't work. It was enough for Maine Assistant Attorney General Carolyn Silsby to take on the case. In 2003, she demanded that GWP turn over 20,000 documents. The walls were closing in. John and Mary were about to lose everything they'd built over the past two decades. They had to fight back, and their first battle was against Judy and Jim's website. John, Mary, and GWP filed a defamation lawsuit against Judy and Jim hoping to get the site taken down. But Judy and Jim refused. The couple filed their own counterclaims, represented by Harvard's Berkman Clinical Program in Cyber Law. The lawsuit and arguments dragged on until it was too late. By that point, the Wind of Changes website had already done its damage. GWP's business and reputation had plummeted. 
Once again, John and Mary were in financial trouble. Then, in the summer of 2006, the state of Maine charged GWP with violating the Unfair Trade Practices Act. The attorney general admonished John and Mary for claiming the devices provided health benefits without any scientific evidence. A few months later, GWP's lawyers quit, saying they hadn't been paid. By the end of that year, GWP reached a settlement with Judy and Jim and dropped their suit. GWP was dissolved, and Judy and Jim didn't have to close down their site. They received an undisclosed dollar amount as compensation. John, Mary, and GWP were gone for good. Or so everyone thought. But like Russian healer Anatoly Kasparovsky once did, the Millers rose from the ashes of their failed cult. A year later, in 2007, they re-emerged under the name Family Systems Research Group. Then, John and Mary founded I Ching Systems and Artworks, which is still operational today. In 2018, Mary died of a stroke at age 69. However, another group family wife, Shelley Miller, appears to be helping John lead the organization into the modern era. The I Ching gift shop still sells the same instruments as GWP once did. However, they no longer claim to heal physical illnesses. Instead, the devices are vaguely intended to provide balance. Destiny card readings and Zoom seminars are also offered. The Millers seem to have partially learned from their past mistakes. Most of the site's pages display a disclaimer that the tools and information aren't FDA-approved. No one has seemed to notice John Miller's resurgence. It's likely because I Ching isn't the only vendor offering balance and relaxation. Today, the New Age marketplace is filled with collectible crystals, intention candles, essential oils, and so much more. These so-called solutions have become a million-dollar industry in the United States. But most of today's businesses are more marketing scheme than cult. According to a 2017 study by the Public Religion Research Institute, many Americans define themselves as spiritual but not religious. Within this group, many New Age believers no longer commit to one faith. Instead, they browse the spiritual supermarket for elements they like to form their own faith system. Spirituality can be a fun way to express yourself, but people have to be vigilant. New Age quick fixes are big money makers, and as we've seen, dangerous faith-healing cults are often driven by greed. When a country's institutions fail its citizens, they try to build their own solutions. But we need to make sure that these new solutions are grounded in facts and science. Too often, desperate people are taken advantage of by snake oil salesmen with grand, baseless claims. Medical research can move slowly, and treatment can be expensive or inaccessible. But in most cases, there's no quick fix to solve this problem. And it seems there's no such thing as a miracle cure. And for those who claim to have one, we should be wary. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. 
Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Cults was written by Mallory Cara, with writing assistance by Robert Tyler Walker and Kate Gallagher, fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Cults stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Thank you.